But what I did have a clue about was really being interested in the land and how light plays across the land and also across uh, the water. I spent a lot of time feet as well as photographing. This photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today we are with Robert Atwater. Robert is, if if I want to be completely honest here, the photographer that I want to be when I grow up. There is such a body of work here, such depth and scope. I am absolutely amazed by this. You probably know his work from the first edition of Frames Magazine, one of the featured artists that we have there. We're going to talk about an awful lot today. We're going to talk about landscape photography. We're going to talk about a life spent and just I mean, more than 50 countries. He's been in India. He's been in Europe. He's been in the Caribbean, Latvia, Estonia, even Death Valley and, and a small island off the coast of Massachusetts. Robert, welcome. How are you today? I'm well, thanks. This is a real treat to be able to discuss your work because so many of the, the, the moods and the flavors that you've got are close to my own heart. But I want to start with something that, that's a little bit unusual, you just for practical reasons for a lot of us. You have shot your work through your entire life with just about every format possible. You've got Polaroids. You've got medium format. I mean, you've got iPhones in there. I mean, just, just right here at the very beginning, does format matter? Uh, ultimately, probably not. Uh, and I can say that at this point in my career as a mature, established photographer, certainly along the line, format certainly mattered a lot, especially when I started moving, migrating away from 35 millimeter when I first started out, went to two and a quarter. And my ambition was like, oh, I, you know, I really need a four by five uh, camera and, you know, sheet film. And so, you know, I went down that road a long time with some amazing results. To answer your question, in retrospect, I don't think format makes that much difference. Why do we have such an interest in format? I mean, there are obviously the technical differences. You know, an iPhone is not a medium format camera in terms of the images that it produces. But finally, what makes you say the difference is not all that important? Yeah, right. So it's really about what you're making a photograph of. It's the image itself. This guy, what's his name? Chase Jarvis is the one who said, the best camera you own is the one that you have with you. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And I agree with that 100%. So I also belong to a bunch of other groups on Facebook, uh, large format. And, you know, I'm amazed that there are still so many photographers out there using large format cameras, larger than 8x10, and God love them. You know, it's like, I love you guys. You know, you're still doing that. And that's just not who I am anymore. Talk to me a little bit about your history. because, And, and I, don't, I don't mean the early photograph. Uh, we're going to get to that in a second. But you claim to have built 15 darkrooms. First of all, why 15 darkrooms? But tell me about the early film training. And, and I, I assume it was 35 millimeter. How, how did that influence your aesthetic vision? 
Yeah, so that was the format that was most readily available to me back in the 70s when I first started off. The woman, it was my uh, college honey, and then, you know, we moved in together after we graduated. Mm-hmm. We got a shipment of furniture from her father, whose furniture had been in storage, and in there was a lucky enlarger which was larger than it was made <laughs> in Japan, probably in the 50s. And it had a lens, and it had some uh, 8 by 10 trays. And, you know, I said, well, let me give this a shot. So I had a point-and-shoot 35-millimeter uh, camera, learned how to develop film, and sort of, you know, took off from there. Did the film work influence what you were shooting? <laughs> Good question. Not really, because it was the only option. Uh, this was before Polaroid. Well, not really before, but before SX-70 Polaroid, which later on in my uh, timeline became a very important part of uh, my work. Yeah, so the other thing that was in the box with the enlarger and the developing trays was an AGFA pamphlet of formulas for film and paper developers. And because I kind of had a scientific background, during school, I knew how to follow formulas and weigh stuff. I had a double beam scale, and I was making my own developers almost from the get-go. So I was a better, I am convinced, I was a much better photographic black and white printer for a long time than I was a black and white photographer. You claim printmaking on your biography as, as one of your artistic outputs. Um, tell me about printmaking from a photographer's point of view as a product specialty, for lack of a better term. Well, I think what's really important as a printmaker in a darkroom environment and as a photographer, they go hand in hand. They, they dovetail with each other. I still contend you cannot be a really good photographer unless you're putting your imagery onto paper. And that's one of the things really attracted me to Frames Magazine. I mean, here's a guy. <laughs> I was going to say, the Frames community loves you now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> but it's more than just kissing up to that. And, you know, I've, I've said this to Tomas before. Um, to start a um, print magazine at this time takes a whole lot of cojones. I, I, I really, hat goes off to them. And, you know, the magazine is a great magazine. But I still believe that you really need to see and be able to hold in your hands an image that you've made. Contemplation of it, the reading of it is different than seeing it on a monitor. And definitely back before that was even, you know, an option. Um, Mm -hmm. The way you looked at uh, images, you you developed a film and you printed them and you learned from there. You know, I, I remember my own early days, you know, playing with the HC-110 and the stop bath and all that, you know, and, and learning, learning to dodge and burn with an enlarger. Aren't I doing this? I'm playing devil's advocate here. Aren't I doing the same thing with my slider bars on Lightroom? Yeah, sure you are. Uh, absolutely. So so what what is the benefit of learning on film then? So the difference is, and I still contend, and I still expose film in medium format, that there is a Definite difference in the look of film and digital capture. Those would argue there's a difference between vinyl and digital music. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not the same thing. I think that there are certain things that, you know, in my repertoire of what I'm looking for imagery 
that lend itself more towards film than digital capture. And yet it's, again, it's like, well, whatever the camera you've got with you is going to be the one that you're going to use, right? But which one do you plan on taking when you head out shooting? I mean, that's, you, yeah. you know, if, if the tornado goes by, you reach for the iPhone. But if you're going out on purpose, do you find a marriage between the gear you take out and the aesthetic you want to capture? Yeah. So, I mean, there are instances where, you know, I make both digital capture as well as film exposure, just to be safe. <laughs> it better be uh-huh. safe. All right. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's pretty recent phenomenon for me. You know, up until you know, 2005, 2006, I was still exposing uh, film. I closed my wet dark room for good in 2003. And so there was that, you know, transition point. And, you know, I got into digital printing. And for all sake and purposes, everything that I do is uh, digital printing, with the exception of one residency two years ago where I was back in the dark room, which was very, very cool. I, I would be afraid to go back into a dark room. <laughs> I think I would be more dangerous than I was as a high school student. <laughs> Let's talk about, before we get to the images and everybody listening, you got to go to robertatwater.com, R-O-B-E-R-T-A-T-W-A-T-E-R.com. I mean, I got to tell you, Robert, your website has more depth to it than a lot of the websites that I see, more breadth to it, more stuff just to linger over and, and, and consider. So I'm encouraging everybody to get there as fast as they possibly can. Oh, thank um, you. I really take that as a compliment. It's well, you know, I think there's a special responsibility when photographers start putting their stuff on the web because it does take time. It does take some effort to organize it. I don't know if you're like me, but my directory files for Lightroom and stuff are just horrible. No sense of organization other than I remember where stuff is. And we can't do that when we publish it. We can't do that when we put it on the web. The other thing, uh, note about the my website is that I developed it and created it. Uh, and I used Adobe Muse. I'm not a co- coder, mm-hmm. but it's almost going back to that same concept for me that you can't make a really good photograph unless you're able to print it. And I kind of feel like that about a website, that you really can't really get a good website unless you do it yourself. Uh, and I'm lucky that I'm able to be able to do that for sure. Well, it, it is a fine site, and I recommend it to everybody. But before we get to the individual photographs and the styles of photographs, and I certainly want to spend some time there before too long, I got to ask you about this first photograph. You claim that you took your first photograph at age four, and you, you've got it on the website here, um, yep. an image of somebody named Marge. That was my mother. Okay. It's a good photo. <laughs> That's, you know, if, if you get out all the rules of photography, you know, rules of thirds and, you know, low key and, and, you know, how the lines are going. Was this a complete accident or, or were you the child genius st- sitting there thinking, you know, here we go? Absolute accident. Lucky, uh, <laughs> lucky accident. <laughs> because if I was doing that, my first shot out of the box, I would have uh, made a lot better photographs uh, when I first started. That's for sure. Well, how did you how did you know that this was going to be something to follow, though? I didn't make any serious photographs until I was in my 20s. And, you know, I was I worked one real job when I got out of college. And during that time, with the lucky and larger and the community I was living in is living in a small 
seaside town in Massachusetts was real artsy and there was a incredible music scene. And it's like, you know, I, what I really want to do is I think I want to, I want to make uh, photographs. And so I, I was looking at, well, who was making really great, great photographs at that time. And, you know, I was looking at that stuff and kind of aspired to, you know, Weston and minor white and that sort of stuff. And I didn't have a clue what I was getting myself into or, you know, what, what I was doing. But away you go. You have, there's another website called 8photoprojects.com. Right. Uh, eight, eight is the number, everybody, not, not the word. The number eight, then photoprojects.com. That has a number of portfolios of your work. Certainly not all of your work, but it's an, an, an awful lot to get a, a good sense of who you are and what you do. And, and I want to begin with the portfolio on black and white landscapes. Perhaps... Uh, mostly for selfish reasons, because I, I love this kind of work. Tell me what draws you to landscape photography. So when I first started out, you know, that's what I was looking at. I was looking at uh, a lot of landscape photographers and, you know, I had aspirations of moving from 35 millimeter to, you know, a four by five view camera or eight by 10 and lugging it around on a tripod and, you know, maybe going to Death Valley and, you know, doing some Western stuff. And it's like, I didn't have a clue. But what I did have a clue about was really being interested in the land and how light plays across the land and also across uh, the water. I spent a lot of time at sea as well, and photographing at sea. And so that was just a natural extension of looking at the land. Here, I've got a camera in my hand, uh, and start taking pictures of it. Say a little bit more about the interplay of light and land, because this applies to the architectural work that you do as well. But what, what is it that speaks to our spirit or our soul when we see you know, a particular quality or shade of light on a dune or a wave or whatever? Yeah, right. The light, you know, you think about, well, I've got all morning to take a picture of this particular landscape. And depending upon the light and the weather, clouds, and a lot of other factors... It's very quick. It's almost like you got to be right there and you may wait a long time to get that one exposure, that one capture, but it really has to do with the light. And mm -hmm. most landscape photographers talk about, well, the magic hour is, you know, sunrise, the golden hour. is Right. Sunrise. Right. Um, and I think there's a great deal of truth to that. At the same time, I believe I made some important landscape images at high noon at all times of the day. Mm -hmm. How do you know when it works? How do you know when this one's good? Good question. So I was uh, listening to Robert Frank interview a couple of days ago. I, I, for some reason, I've been thinking about Frank. And he was talking about, you know, relationship to the Americans, of knowing when he made a good photograph. And, you know, I, I thought about that for a while. And I've always thought that 75% of the time when I have a good photograph, I know it even before I take the picture, before I release the shutter or make the capture. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the other 25% of the time is during the editing process of looking either at contact sheets or looking at your images in Bridge or in Lightroom and you know making uh, decisions based on that. But what defines a quality landscape image? Is it interesting? Is it something that I want to look at 
again and okay. again and again. Is it something that I believe other people would be interested in looking at? And, you know, sometimes it's, you got to let that stuff percolate for a year or so and see how you feel about it after 12 months or 24 months, or in some cases, after a couple of years, does it stand the test of time? Mm-hmm. And I've had an awful lot of ones that I thought, well, wow, this is just great. And then, you know, six months later, think, well, what was I thinking about this? You know, that's just crazy. You, you know, I think you hit upon something essential there that we don't talk about an awful lot. And that is the ability of an image to reward a reviewing. Certainly a lot of images reward a first viewing. You look at it and you think, wow, that's spectacular or that's, you know, whatever. But then you come back to it a second time. You come back to a third time. And if it's still speaking to you, then you got something to hang on to. Exactly. Um, and I, you know, I think landscape, uh, from at least my point of view, the best landscape photography is a continual act of revelation it's one of those things where you go back you think oh my you know i'm a little bit different and now this picture is a little bit different it's still speaking to me uh which which your work does i gotta tell you man i am jealous as hell about you going to tibet and and everybody these tibetan pictures are on the the eight photo projects website tell me tell me a tibet story tell me about going there about shooting and about stuff that maybe isn't in the images to Tibet in 2000. And you just can't roll into the country. You couldn't roll into the country then. And I bet it's even harder now. So you have to have visas and you have to have permission from the Chinese embassy and you just can't wander around. So I signed on with, <laughs> I signed on with these Hindu pilgrims who are going out to Mount Kailash, sacred mountain in Western Tibet. And we bumped along overland for about four weeks coming and going. There are no roads in Western Tibet. It's, it's real high. It's like 14, 15,000 feet, but it kind of looks like Montana. And you're surrounded by huge mountains on either side, you know, the Himalayas to the south. And, you know, when you, there are a lot of rivers, you have to ford rivers. And, you know, we were in these old junky Toyota Land Cruisers. And um, we had a supply truck that followed us because there's no gas stations, there's no stores. We camped every night and we got to Mount Kailash, which is a very sacred place, both for Hindus as well as for Tibetans. And I timed it so that I would arrive there with these Hindu pilgrims for Sagadawa, which is the birth of the Buddha. And they have a huge celebration in the middle of nowhere in front of Mount Kailash and photographing there was just a trip. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Well, I, I'm looking at an image of Mount Kailash right now on your website, and it is beautifully done. This this is the one where the mountains in the uh, the background is a little bit hazy back there, but you've got this really intense foreground, you know, framing it all. Lovely, lovely work. I do want to ask you the story behind one image, and this is the destroyed monastery at Darchin. T- tell me the story of that shot. So we had, there were guides and there were Sherpas that were qualified to go to a certain elevation. And these guys were just, you know, they were skipping around. And so this is like 15, 16, 17,000 feet to get up to the monastery. And, you know, I've been acclimating for three weeks or so. And, you know, I was still huffing and puffing and it's like uncomfortable. And getting up there, we went and found this Sherpa guide 
And I found this Tibetan Buddhist monk. And, you know, he kind of guided us up to this uh, destroyed monastery. And the Sherpa spoke some English and was talking about, you know, how during the Cultural Revolution, the Chinese had destroyed all the monasteries, how they had suppressed everybody. And most Tibetans are still pretty scared of the Chinese. And, well, they should be. But going up to that monastery and seeing it, it was like, you know, that's all unfolding in front of me. And I'm a little uh, not high from the altitude as like being high, high, but just really oxygen uh, depletion. Getting up there and, you know, uh, actually I sat down and, and started photographing that. You know, th- that was a high point too. Absolutely. Well, it, it's one of the few photographs from this series that includes, well, I shouldn't take that back, there are several, that, that includes structures and, and a kind of, of human presence. This one seems to be particularly rich in narrative. You've got this walkway leading away from the lens towards the monastery. I mean, you could have been 15 steps closer, 15 steps left or right, but you set it up in a, in a kind of narrative form. Right. Can, can landscape be narrative? Oh, absolutely. I think so. I think that a good landscape tells a story. You know, looking back at some of the 19th century American photographers out in the West, they were definitely telling stories with their work and influenced politically how uh, the West was opened up. I mean, that's pretty evident stuff. Mm-hmm. Not all of your landscape work is black and white. So tell, tell me about the difference for you. Yes. So I didn't start really photographing seriously in color until, oh, 1991. And the story of how I got into it's kind of long. I don't want to get into that. I want to stick to your question of (laughs) uh, black and white and color photography. And I think that, again, a lot of it has to do with the light. I think that a lot of it has to do with what's in the landscape. Is there a lot of color in the landscape or is it pretty monochromatic? And it's like it renders itself, it's better rendered in black and white. Some of my later landscapes are in color. I'm looking, I'm sitting in my studio right now. I'm looking at one that is taken maybe four or five years ago. Just, it still blows me away. It's just. Mm-hmm. And in black and white, it just wouldn't have been as strong or as powerful statement. One of your segments, one one of your portfolios, you call long shots. Um, And you don't really mean long exposure. No. Uh, (laughs) Tell me about this portfolio. And when we get into it, I got to ask you about one in particular shot. But first, what are you doing there? So that is, that's film. They're, They're film exposures. It's a panoramic camera. This one is a Fuji GX uh, 617. So it's six centimeters high by 17 centimeters long each negative. You get four to a roll of 12 exposures, uh, 120. And the lenses are interchangeable as a wide angle, a normal, and a telephoto. And they're real high end lenses. I mean, they're they're large format view camera lenses. Mm -hmm. Quality is just superb. And a lot of people who are into that format usually put them on tripods. There's a spirit level in the camera, you know, try, because if you're out, especially the wide angle lens, if you're out of parallax a little bit, you get a real noticeable distortion. I've always been kind of a handhold kind of guy. And what's really, what's really cool that you bringing this up 
as we're sitting here now, or I'm sitting here now, I'm waiting for a delivery of 13 inch by 38 inch paper to print uh, 30 of them. Oh, uh, my heavens. Yeah. So I've been, uh, within the last week, strange coincidence, I've been, you know, reprinting them and I've been looking at them again. I've been thinking about them again. So I made a decision, you know, I really want a definitive set of prints that are, you know, fairly large because it's a large format uh, mm-hmm. camera. They, they are extraordinary. I mean, wide angle is true, but doesn't do it justice. Um, th- they are extraordinary wide shots. But I'm going through the portfolio here. I'm thinking, this is beautiful. This is beautiful. And then I get to the verticals. And if if you're listening, imagine, you know, a standard wide angle shot, you know, much wider than it is tall. But now it's flipped around. And suddenly here's a palm tree on a beach. But we got a bunch of beach and a bunch of sky and compressed left and right. It really took my breath away. What what made you turn the camera? What made you envision a vertical wide angle versus the horizontal. I mean, why not? I mean, you know, you're looking, the camera has a viewfinder, so you're not looking through the lens. And it's like, you know, of course you're going to be looking at things uh, as a vertical with it. Um, There was also a very pretty famous book of New York architecture of buildings that was photographed with these cameras back in the 90s. And I want to say the name of the book was Vertical. I'm not sure. It's a black and whiter. And I remember, certainly that must have had some sort of influence on me in thinking about some of the images that I've made as verticals. There's one with the waterfall. It's a long exposure. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that just naturally lends itself as a vertical. But, you know, there's one of an infinity pool in the Azores that's a vertical. That just really does it for me. You know, it's just, you know, you're using space in a way that isn't really that common to see. And it makes me think about space and using it in a different way for sure. I, I think, well, the, the work was was absolutely mesmerizing. And I think a lot of us have, you know, looked through a viewfinder. We've seen an image like that. Oh, that's sort of cute. But then we turn the camera the quote right way, you know, and, and not paused long enough or not thought about it enough, but it, impressive work, sir. I was I was reading, I think it was in Frames Magazine, you were talking about shooting in India, and, and you were talking about, you know, you're, you're doing your work, but you're also handing out Polaroids as, you know, a, a way to break the ice to establish some community with the people that you're working with. And yet you've got a whole portfolio of Polaroids here. Tell me the appeal of that process, that whatever you want to call it. Uh, Polaroids were the first color that I really could have prints of. Yeah, back in 35 millimeter days for me, I was making color slides, but other than projecting them on walls, there was nothing I could really do with them at the time. Polaroids starting SX7, you got these little funky prints, and I mean, it was just like magic for me. And, you know, I kept making them. Oh, from the mid seventies all the way up until you couldn't get any film anymore. And, you know, I went from a SX 70 to a Spectra and the work in India is all Spectra work. The quality is a little bit better than SX 70, but the images themselves, they're unique, not only because they're just a unique print, but the way, you know, Polaroid, that plastic lens renders things is very, very different. And the immediacy of it is certainly attractive. This was before iPhones and digital cameras. And 
being able to engage somebody who's never seen a Polaroid before in that process, I'd always heard about that before, you know, I started experiencing that for myself. That is just magic. That is unbelievable. And people are just, if that was 2,000 years ago, they would make you uh, emperor of Rome. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like that. Photographers as emperor. I think they've given us all a new career goal there. You have made a career out of travel, 50 countries and you know all, all over the world. And you have engaged in some pretty substantial residencies. So from a photographer's point of view, you know, tell me about life away from home, but also tell me then about settling in for residencies in a foreign place. How does that feed your work? How does that, how does that go? The residencies, I, I've done four of them starting in 2016. I did one, I've done one a year and they've all been in Europe, Eastern Europe. And I did one during the winter months in Northern Iceland, which was a real trip. <laughs> I bet, I bet. And so it's a very different, it's, it's a different experience than traveling or renting a house for a month or so because you're with other artists, which is really cool. The work that I was doing was unique to each residency. No two were the same. And I really look forward to, you know, after I did the first one, it was like, oh, I, this is what I want to be doing. This is what I want to be doing for, you know, at least the next 10 years. And because of COVID, of course, you know, I didn't do one in 2020 and I passed up a really great one in Australia. And it's like, I, I really regret that one. But the work that's come out of it, out of the residencies for me, has been different. It's, uh, it's not that I felt like I'd been stagnating, but what I've been doing with the residence, the work in the residencies is definitely pushing my work forward in some ways that I never imagined possible. Being able to sit in one place, have a proposal, this is what I'm going to do, show up and start working on what you think you're going to do. And in some cases, I stuck pretty close to what I thought I was going to do. In other cases, I mean, I did like almost 180 degrees. An example is the first one I did was in Lisbon, Portugal. And I was, and I'd been there a couple times before, and I was really fascinated, interested in the architecture of one particular part of Lisbon. And it's all contemporary architecture. And so I went back there and I was developing a proposal on a project that architecture is a visual language and got into how that actually works as photographs. And, you know, what am I communicating and what is the architecture communicating? And are they really the same communication? And I don't think they are, but that was a real turning point. And I'm glad that was the first one for me because it really like set me up to be like, wow, I could uh, really get into these type of projects as opposed to individual projects that I've been doing in the past. They were a little more structured. There was a definite timeline to them. And there was also an outcome that had to be achieved. It's like you, you couldn't be the end of it, leaving it just sort of hanging. You had to have closure. There would be an exhibition or there would be presentations. There would be open studios. It was, it was really, really an engaging process, to be sure. That, that is, oh, I, I am completely envious. 
You brought up something just a second ago that I, I want to go back to. And if you're listening, this this is yet another version of, of the website. This is at a site called My Big Fat Photographs, but fat is spelled with PH. Right. So mybigfatphotographs.com. You have a section there on architectural photography. And I've always found a question in, in this genre really interesting. If, if you're taking pictures of extraordinary architecture are you taking extraordinary pictures or are you taking normal pictures mundane pictures of somebody else's genius it's you know like going to the louvre and taking a picture of a painting your picture is is absolutely ordinary but somebody else did a good painting what what makes architectural photography special you know for me what what happens is you know i start let's take um the Geary Museum in Panama. I'm not sure if you've been looking at that or not. It's a real bright colored uh, interiors, metals, and mm-hmm. all sorts of planes and angles. Um, you know, the first time I, I went there, I just had an iPhone with me and say, wow, I got to come back. So I went back there every day for several days with a digital camera. And it's like, I, I would get rolling. It's like, you know, it's like, start picking up details, looking at it, and because it's digital, I can see, you know, right away how it looks. And then really, you know, getting inspired, enthused by what the architecture is saying to me. And so it becomes a dance that we are dancing together. And the outcome of that movement are images. Oh, I love that. You have a whole series of facades. T- tell me what's engaging in that dance idea from that. Uh, by the facades, do you mean the the doors and the windows? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I've always been photographing that stuff. And it, it really is, it's more than a dance. It's almost like visual calisthenics that I'm able to compose frame and make that happen a doorway. And a window that is pretty main mundane stuff. Everybody else does that. And yet some of, uh, some of mine, I think really stand the test of time, no doubt about it. I, I think, I think they do. And you, we go back to this old idea of composition being everything and light being everything. Looking at your color architecture page right now, uh, you begin with a very plain wooden door. It's got a kind of decoration on the top of it, but this beautiful crossing diagonal line of light and shadow, you know, which is only there for the 30 seconds, you know, of the sun was in that position, completely your artwork with the door simply being in it. Uh, that's it, it is wonderful stuff. What are you working on oh, now? Thank you. I've been uh, housebound like the rest of the world, and I'm very fortunate that I do have access to the Atlantic Ocean and a beach. It's a very nice place. Uh, <laughs> it does not really lend itself to a lot of photography for me. So, what I've been doing, I've been photographing inside my house, I've been photographing in the mornings and the afternoons how the light coming through Venetian blinds falls on various objects in my house, right? Mm-hmm. Pretty stupid and dumb, but and it is pretty stupid and dumb, but there's been some really amazing photographs. The body of work is, uh, the working title is Light Leaks, like a leaky yeah. Uh, yeah. film holder. And so, yeah, I mean, light is leaking into my space and I'm photographing um, what that looks like. And then I'm making uh, 
fairly large format prints at the end of the day of that. Are, are these are these composed still lifes? Are they more? Tell me a little bit more. They are still lifes. It's like, you know, how light's falling across a wall, how light is falling onto pieces of furniture, pillows on the bed, my dresser. I, I started looking at um, Jan Groover's work maybe a month or so ago because that kind of triggered some of her work that she was doing. Because I first started this uh, with the slight leaks with pots and pans drying in my dish drainer in the morning and, you know, real close up. And she did a lot of stuff like that. And it's like, you know, I started expanding from there into the living room and into the bedroom. Now, and then I find myself, I'm hanging out in the bedroom in an easy chair waiting for the sun to be just right. <laughs> and I'm saying, well, this is pretty cool. I mean, yeah, I was going to say, yeah. sure you are. You're just hanging out in the easy chair. I know. <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, it's, you know, you're killing time until, you know, we can get back on an airplane and go someplace. Oh, man. Well, I, I, I imagine the minute the travel bans are lifted, you're going to be heading someplace. This has been wonderful. This has been fascinating. I really do admire your work. I look at it and, and I think, you know, like I said, this, this is what I want to do when I grow up. So thank you very much. Thank you. Frames. Because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com.